We'd like to thank Cassiopeia Books for sponsoring Voices and Views. They are located at 606 Central Avenue in downtown Great Falls. Besides being a place to find your favorite books, they also host events with authors, book clubs, and local groups weekly. For special orders or more information, you can reach them at 315-1515. Welcome to Voices and Views on Great Falls Public Radio, KGPR 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Thomas Rushberg, and today on the show, I have the pleasure of welcoming Elfie Neighbor, a psychology professor at Great Falls College, Montana State University, and Ashley Haley, a student of the Substance Abuse and Addiction Counseling Program here at Great Falls College, Montana State University. And also... Um, an ambassador for the Native American Enrichment Center here at Great Falls College. So we have a great show coming up for you today. The topic is going to be harm reduction. And if you're not familiar with it, stay tuned because it is something that impacts all of our lives in, in many ways. And we have two folks that have had experience with it, that have worked a lot on developing solutions that are going to help people recover from substance abuse, which is near and dear to my heart. I lost my brother, David Risberg, in 2017 to substance abuse. I'm in recovery myself since uh, August of 2017. And so first off, I want to just start by thanking you both, Alfie and Ashley, for the great work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, let's get into, uh, you guys have an event coming up on harm reduction right here at Grace Falls College, MSU. So Ashley, can you tell us a little bit about the event? So our event is scheduled for October 3rd, 2023 in Heritage Hall here uh, on the Great Falls campus, MSU. Um, The event is titled, Let's Talk Harm Reduction Strategies for Recovery. Um, The event is going to include a number of people giving their perspectives on addiction as well as harm, re- harm reduction efforts here in Great Falls. The opening speaker, Tamara Knotts, is going to be giving an overview on MAT, the medication-assisted treatment, and that is going to be involving uh, different stereotypes as well as providing educational information to the attendees. I'm going to be sharing my own story regarding medication-assisted treatment and how I have, um, how that has impacted my recovery. And then we're going to be having Leela Graham um, give her presentation on the Safe Needle Exchange Program. And then finally, we are going to be having a discussion panel. um, And these individuals that are involved in the discussion panel include um, Clint Huston, who is from Great Falls Police Department, uh, Katie Cunningham, who is also from the Great Falls Police Department, George George Meters, he's at LAC, um, Megan Farmer, and LCPC, Shelly Andrews, who is one of our, who is one of my current um, professors, as well as an employee at Benefice, and she's so knowledgeable regarding um, pharmacotherapy, and Within that event, we are going to be focused on providing information and education to the attendees, as well as this 
dispelling um, stereotypes and negative um, connotations that people have with harm reduction because there's a lot of resistance in that in those approaches because people tend to think that when we are employing these methods that we are basically providing substances to people who are in active addiction or who are still currently searching for long-term recovery. And that is not necessarily true. So our aim is to educate and empower because addiction impacts every single person in throughout the world, um, either personally or, you know, community wise. And so it's something that we all need to be involved in. We all need to be educated about because through education, we're able to make great changes with our policies. Absolutely. And I know, so whether it's Katie Cunningham, Clint Houston, George Matters and Megan Bailey or Megan Farmer, (laughs) both from Many Rivers Whole Health. That is a real dream team of, you know, people in law enforcement, clinicians that see this day to day. Right. And so I highly encourage our listeners, if there's one thing you do here as we start fall, go to this event on harm reduction. You will leave enlightened. You will leave feeling uh, good about the future of our community and and efforts to address substance abuse and and you'll know a lot more about what is happening here in Great Falls. And so Ashley, can you give our listeners one more time when does the event start the day start and where it is? So it's going to be on Tuesday, October 3rd um, from 5.30 to 6 is going to be our meet and greet. And then from 6 to 8 is going to be the actual event. It's free and open to the public and we encourage everyone to attend. Um, Like I said, this issue impacts every single person, not only here in Great Falls, but in throughout the country and the world. So it's approaches that are really top notch and are really heavily um, based in research and research is showing positive results related to these strategies. So it's really important that our community is educated as well as um, supportive of these approaches. So before we dive into harm reduction, because I think we hear that term, right? And very much so wondering, well, what does that actually mean? I think a lot of people wonder what medication-assisted treatment is. What does that mean? So we're going to have a rich discussion about that, but something I like to do with this show um, and that I want to get through before we we dive into the the weeds on medication-assisted treatment and harm reduction is getting to know you guys, having our listeners understand about your lives, uh, how your values were created, seminal experiences you had that have built you into the person you are today. And the purpose behind that is to just do our little part here on Great Falls Public Radio to chip back against what I have termed a culture of contempt that I see emerging in our uh, country, in our communities, where we don't take the time to understand people, to know their values. We just see something on social media. We see something on the news and some position they hold, and we make broad assumptions about you know, who that person is, what they stand for, uh, what their values are that are typically, you know, almost diametrically opposed to who that person actually is. And the only way we're going to kind of change that narrative is to put out a counter narrative and to start having people see people as whole people. And then you may have vehement disagreements. That's what's wonderful in a vibrant democracy. This is what makes us all better, but we don't have to hate the person, right? We don't have to see our fellow citizen, our fellow community member as an enemy. We see them as 
a a friend and and a person that has a different viewpoint. And and by having the crucible of ideas meet and we see how they they turn out, we're all going to get better. So with that, I'm going to start with you, Alfie, and let me know a little bit about your background and and experiences you've had that have driven you into this work supporting people with substance abuse issues. So um, I've been a licensed uh, mental health professional since, when did I get licensed? 1995. And I worked in the field both in uh, treating mental health and substance use disorders. I originally was licensed in California as a marriage and family therapist. And from that perspective, you look at family systems and how that system impacts the individual that you're treating and what about that system maybe sustains behaviors that are less than useful, as I like to put them, including addiction. So I I did that, and as part of that, I worked for an organization called Overcomers Outreach, and they, or Overcomers was a uh, Christ-based 12-step recovery group using the principles of the 12 steps, but um, generally, instead of just a higher power, they uh, would refer to Jesus as their higher power. And that was probably where I really got my education on substance use, um, working with the folks there. Everybody was in recovery there. I I am not. Um, But I have learned a lot about addiction because I'm a great codependent. And if anybody knows about addictions, anybody with a substance use disorder has to have a good codependent to help support it. So uh, I've... And, of course, treated clients with it and um, did a lot of reading uh, by on books by John Bradshaw, Melody Beattie, Claudia Black, who really explored the family systems that sustain substance use. And with that, I recognized myself because my father was actually uh, someone who uh, was an alcoholic who... Um, this happened overseas in Europe. He took this pledge when he was about, I think it was before he married my mom. So he was about 27. And he took a pledge to never use alcohol again and basically replaced his substance use with extreme like fundamentalist religiosity. And so when I look at the characteristics of uh, adult children, I'd see myself because, you know, I was told, don't think, don't feel. Uh, very much black and white thinking, very rigid growing up, like you must obey the rules. I mean, on top of that, I'm German, so there's already that there, you know. But um, so that all got me really interested in the field. And then kind of to where I am today. So, you know, somehow here I was working at Great Falls College, teaching psychology, totally my comfort zone. I became department chair and was tasked with implementing this new AA and addictions counseling. And so... um, I've, you know, that was has been a learning curve, and I've actually, one of the coolest things about it was I teach the first, one of the first classes, which is called Drugs and Society, mm-hmm. and Ashley was in that class, and as I told my students, this is a good learning experience for both of us, because this is not an area of expertise, but I certainly learned a lot teaching that class, and um, it, it Actually, it came out of that class. We had a discussion one day, and the issue of medication-assisted treatment came up, and there was a lot of debate. Not everybody was supportive of this. And so when we, uh, with our Addictions Advisory Board, we wanted to have an annual educational event about substance use. And um, when I met with Dean Snow, head of Sober Life, we said, hey, 
why not do it on this issue of harm reduction? Because if we have people in my class who are all planning to become addictions counselor, having such strong debates, what does the rest of the community think? So that's kind of how we got here today. I love it. So there's a couple things I want to unpack there. One, having your clinical expertise, could you give us a working definition of codependent? Ooh, I, I think my favorite working definition is um, is actually a joke, and it's when the person wake, wakes up and looks at their significant other and says, how do I feel today? They base their existence on what the other person is doing, feeling, experiencing. So if that person's happy, it's a good day. I'm going to be happy. If that person's mad, I must have done something wrong, and I better find a way to fix it. And I would say it's almost like a loss of self because you are so hypervigilant in tune with the people you're in, interacting with, and you feel very strong, strongly that it's your job to fix it. So, you know, this is the person that, okay, you're drinking too much, I'm going to pour out your alcohol, which we know doesn't work. Uh, this is the person who'll still get in the car with the person who's had five drinks because they don't want to upset them, you know. And so I, I see it really as a loss of self because you're gauging who you are and how you respond to your environment based on everybody else but what you're actually experiencing. So if you ask that person, how are you feeling, they're not going to know the answer because it's based on, are you having a good day, Thomas? And how are you feeling? Then I'm, I'm going to be okay too. And I think that that's, I just wanted to get that out to our listeners because, you know, we talk about we have these clinical definitions, right, of, okay, you know, you have a substance use disorder. Okay, you have bipolar. But there's these spectrums, right? And we all fall somewhere along those. And the one that I see most, and I certainly am guilty of it too, right, is, you know, people pleaser is a term you'll hear a lot, right? And I, I think people should really educate themselves because I bet we have a lot of folks that are somewhere kind of on that codependent spectrum down here and, and are kind of asking themselves, why do I seem to be up and down all the time and never really able to find solid ground emotionally, right, mm -hmm. and mentally? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that is because they're a code, in a codependent relationship with one or more people who are also not having a stable foundation. And when your foundation is them and they're not stable, you can't get off the roller coaster until you start building your own foundation. And so I just wanted to get that out there. And I, I do, can you give those, the books? I know Melanie Beatty is terrific. Yeah. yeah, she wrote a really good book. I think it came out in the 90s. It was called Codependent No More. And then she wrote a follow-up to that. And I think it was, I can't remember the title, but I think it was either Codependent No More, second, you know, version two or follow-up on it. And I think I just want to add one last thing about it. One of the most significant things when someone struggles with codependency is, they don't recognize their own needs. And and that becomes problematic. And your needs go out the window. You basically stop existing. And we can't be healthy and healed if we don't know what it is I need in this world and how do I take care of myself, you know. And, and so the more someone with codependency who's in a relationship with someone who's abusing substances focuses on that, the healthier that relationship can get. And that will actually sometimes be then what prompts that other person to get into recovery. Yeah, because bottling what it looks like as yeah. a recovering codependent. Right. 
And so, so the the last thing that I wanted to follow up on with you on that is just to give you kudos for I, you know I, I hope people understand that this has just started. This is the second year, right, of mm-hmm. having an addiction mm-hmm. counseling program yep. at Great Great Falls College, Montana State University, and and really just say to our listeners, you know, how do they get involved? Well. Those who are interested in becoming students, we love always getting more students. If anybody's interested in getting uh, a degree in addictions counseling, we also have clinicians in the community who would like to add this licensure to, you know, whether they're a licensed clinical professional counselor or clinical social worker. We we offer these courses um, both online and face-to-face, so they're accessible. And you know, another way community can get involved is just by coming to this event and educating themselves. We hope to make this an annual thing where mm-hmm. annually we do something. Um, and, you know, we do have an advisory board that guides us in these things. So I think those are some ways the community can get involved. And just to be open not only to this event, but I think of like the Sober Life and all the amazing recovery mm-hmm. events that day they do in educational events. And just keep seeking knowledge because I think with that comes that ability to, to work our own recovery because we can all use some healing. And uh, just be more aware and be learn how we can support but not enable the people in our lives who may be in crisis. Yep. Perfect. And so, Ashley, you know, same question to you. What was growing up, right? You know, what was life like? What, what are some of the values you learned that have led you to be the person you are today and, and to be so passionate about recovery? So, um I have been in recovery since December 3rd, 2015. Um, I am an enrolled member of the Chippewa Creek Tribe on the Rocky Bay Reservation. I'm a descendant of the Assiniboine Tribe um, located on Fort Belknap Reservation, and I'm half Navajo from my dad, and I am a part of the Yakima Nation over in Washington. Um, I moved to Montana when I was 12, um, and I grew up with five brothers and I was the only girl. So in that role, I became the natural caretaker for my brothers because um, it was just kind of assumed. (laughs) Um, But just going, referencing back to earlier conversations, I was a people pleaser, um, not only for my mom, but also for my grandpa and my community because that recognition brought validation. And in that validation, I felt good about myself. And I, I think that it kind of drove me to continue with my academics. Um, So I graduated from UM in 2010 with a BA in political science with an option in public admin and a BA in Native American studies. Um, From there, I went back home and to work for my tribe and just being around the environment that um, unfortunately my community communities are plagued with. Um, There's a high rate of unemployment, a high rate of substance abuse and alcoholism, as well as diabetes, um, other health disparities, and other um, negative factors that can really bring a person down. Um, I think that because I wasn't, I didn't know how to cope in a healthy manner, because that was never something that was taught to me or even shown to me, um, I I began seeking out um, validation through um, substances, specifically opiates. Um, That was my drug of choice. Um, And 
with opiates, it's like you can, you know, still be a functioning addict and you don't really realize how much your dependence grows over time until you cannot get out of bed without making sure that you have something to ensure that you can get through the morning without being sick. And it was that at that point that um, I realized what a huge problem I had. Um, but then, of course, it was, you know, years back and forth of having those realizations and then still not doing anything about it. But um, it was actually a dream that I had on December 2nd of 2015. And in my dream, I woke up and I was in my old house um, up in Rocky Boy because at this point I had just had my daughter. She was a year old and I was living here in Great Falls. Um, but in my dream, I woke up in my old house in Rocky Boy and I woke up on the couch and I was surrounded by bare furniture. And I knew like in my heart that I didn't have my daughter, that, that my daughter was with her dad and that I didn't have custody of her. And immediately all of those feelings of like anger, shame, um, you know, all of these really strong emotions started to overtake me. But then immediately, you know, preceding that was like this feeling of find something, find something so you're not sick, find something so you don't have to feel, find something so you don't have to work out, you know, all of these negative consequences that are a result of your um, addiction. And I, in that, in my dream, I started crying. And when I woke up, I was crying. And I woke up my partner and I told him that I needed to go to treatment. And two weeks later, I was in treatment. Um, and I've been in recovery since then. So in my culture, um, dreams, they're really powerful. And I, I think the creator that I was given the opportunity to receive that message because not a lot of people can, not a lot of people in addiction are able to receive those types of uh, messages and so I'm thankful that I was able to receive it and that I was strong enough to do something about it because you know as we know relapse is really you know it's really really prevalent and with um, the medication assisted treatment here I learned about it once I um, once I got out of my 30-day uh, treatment facility because I at that point I still didn't know have have any healthy coping skills um so I heard about uh, medication-assisted treatment, and I've been on it since I got out of um, out of treatment. And throughout uh, my journey with Matt, I was able to have access to um, mental health counseling. I was able to figure out my own demons and work through them, but still have the accountability of not relapsing. Because when you're on Matt, you don't have... Um, you're not able to take opiates because you have an opiate blocker. It stops you from feeling the effects of um, actually feeling high. Um, so I was able to have that accountability while still dealing with my demons, but so much so that if I was triggered, I didn't, um, I couldn't go out and, you know, use because it would have meant anything. And so um, I, I thank Matt because I don't believe that I would be, as far along in my recovery or in my mental health journey as I am without it. And, you know, as as weird as it is to say, I am happy that I can, you know, pull my um, my UAs for the last what, seven years. And I've, I've never failed a UA. And I'm, I'm really proud of that fact because recovery is hard and staying in recovery is harder. But it's something that I don't ever regret. It's something that I, I hope to continue on, but I know it's um, life has a ton of ups and downs and hopefully I'm able to 
utilize the coping skills that I've I've been able to learn while in mental health counseling, which is a big aspect of the MAP program is mental health counseling. And I wanted to dive in just a little deeper on the mental health counseling aspect because we've talked about some of the very innovative uh, therapies that are mm-hmm. out there. And in particular, could you talk not necessarily about your experience, but about EMDR? Yeah. Okay. So I just finished my... Um, my last session of EMDR right now I'm like on a, a, a month hiatus from mental health counseling um, with my counselor just because I, I wanted to take this time to just kind of reflect. But anyways, um, I was in EMDR counseling for about a year and a half to two years and it was really it was really hard. Um, e, EMDR is not about um, exposure treatment. It's about reprocessing. And in doing doing that, you're going over your memories and speaking about them and sharing details that you feel comfortable sharing and you're picking out things within those memories that trigger you that could have possibly led you to using so for example like I mentioned earlier I was a people pleaser but I neglected my own needs in being a people pleaser I didn't know how to enforce boundaries um because that's not something that is really um supported in in Native American communities is is boundaries, personal boundaries. We're all just taught to, you know, support each other because more likely than not, we're related to each other. But, you know, we're all just taught to forgive and, you know, let everything go because that's your relative. So it was really, really hard for me to kind of break away from that. And I am thankful that I, I'm grateful that I was able to go through EMDR because it is a lengthy process. But it's something that I definitely feel really, really positive about. I could see the effects in the way that I'm able to handle stressful situations. And I could see the way that I react. I reacted previously. It's so, you know, mentally and emotionally draining on you that you don't realize that those are defense mechanisms until you're able to kind of step back and and learn, you know, from them. Absolutely. And I, I, I feel like untreated trauma, unhealed trauma is a driving force mm-hmm. between a lot of whether it's substance abuse, overeating, gambling, right, mm-hmm. is it's a way to get outside of yourself and to not feel your feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's just an intriguing one where you, you see kind of old truths, right, that we know that if, you know, you've been through trauma, you need to, to heal, right? Mm-hmm. You need to. And yet we combine it with kind of cutting edge science. And just it is about you take a memory, right? And then you try to change the association you have with that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I just say that to all our listeners, this is one where of all the various therapeutic approaches, I think cognitive behavioral therapy is probably the best known one, Mm -hmm. right? Which is essentially, you know, you have, you change your thinking, you change your actions, you change your consequences, Mm -hmm. but that of folks that have gone through trauma. And so this is for our listeners or, or anyone in their family and friends, EMDR is, is relatively new and and has really been powerful, and I've heard that throughout. So just as kind of a, a public service announcement of, of sorts, uh, look into EMDR, not saying it's <clears throat> clinically appropriate for you, just saying that it's something that's out there that's that's innovative. And that's a great thing about, you know, um, having this program here in Great Falls because we are in such a rural state that these um, services – these specialized services aren't always available to us. Um, it took me six months before I was able to finally find um, a provider that was able to see me. But um, as you mentioned, I uh, because I'm on mat, I uh, second portion of me being within the program is seeking out mental health counseling. And so I've tried CBT. I've tried, um, you know, 
DBT. I've tried, you know, all of these different therapies, but it, I would shut down when I came to certain points of my healing to the point that it was debilitating to the point where it, I wasn't able to progress in my um, healing from my own trauma. So EMDR definitely gave me the tools to be able to reprocess at a rate that I was comfortable with. Um, I was able to feel comfortable in sharing information that normally I wouldn't share with anybody. And I think that it's it's it provided me a, a feeling of stability, but also of feeling safe that I can, you know, go through these hard memories without, you know, losing myself, without losing my recovery or losing all of the progress that I've, I've gone. Absolutely. And I think that's a great segue. So we, you know, I really appreciate you guys sharing your kind of personal stories and how you got here. And I, I think, you know, listeners, you know, I hope you can see we're dealing with two committed advocates that, you know, are spending a tremendous amounts of their lives trying to, to better our community and people that struggle with substance abuse. And with that kind of all as a, a background, let's jump in now to harm reduction. So I want to get the, the nitty gritty sort of definition of harm reduction. So harm reduction is an approach that looks at what can we do to support people where they are? And let's keep people alive. So it includes things like what Ashley has spoken about, medication-assisted treatment. It includes things like providing uh, people who, who inject substances with clean needles because then you don't have the byproduct of them also having all kinds of infections and diseases because of shared needles. And the hope is also that it keeps the needles off of the park grounds and in secure places so they don't do harm. It also includes things like making Narcan, or also known as naloxone, available to first responders and to just anyone in the public. If you have a loved one that you know is using opioids, there's always a risk that they're going to overdose. And especially, you know, if we've been hearing about um, People who purchase street drugs, they're at risk for getting opioids that are laced with other substance, particularly most recently fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And that is super powerful and can easily lead to an overdose. And Narcan being administered can save that life because if they're not alive, they can't get into treatment. And so it, it's a bunch of strategies. There, It also includes, and we don't see this a lot here in the United States, but but ideally it would also include safe injection sites. So a person who knows they struggle with addiction would go to this site to shoot up heroin or opiates or whatever it is in the presence of a medical professional that if something goes amiss, they can be intervened and kept alive. I believe there's one, one or two such sites in New York City, but that's mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so a, a lot of people, so some of the, the uh, critics of harm reduction feel that we enable the addictive behavior. Um, and so that's part of when we have our panel discussion, we want to address some of those pros and cons. And, you know, like anything, harm reduction methods can be abused. Um, but I think if you have a loved one or you yourself struggle with substance use, if you're not alive, you can't get into recovery. I mean, that's that's mm -hmm. kind of my approach to it. We we need to meet people where they are. And if that means helping them do this in a safe way, because tomorrow might be the day when they realize this is nuts, I need to go get help. 
Absolutely. And so what I think when you when you talk harm reduction writ large, right, I think it's helpful to understand some context that we are here in the United States in the midst of uh, a drug, drug epidemic, the likes that have never been seen before. Uh, 100,000 people are overdosing a year. Uh, the majority of those are, are of some form of opioid. Uh, you go back 10 years ago, that was being led by prescriptions, Oxycontin. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you've seen a lot of the prescription drug registries come on. A lot of the pill mills are gone. And in their place, right, at first it was heroin, and now it's fentanyl. And to mm -hmm. give our listeners a kind of understanding of the magnitude of how much more powerful, it's about 50 times more powerful than heroin. Yeah. So we're not talking a little more. And what we're seeing today is that common drugs of abuse, right, but that are prescribed. So, for instance, you would hear things like Xanax, right, mm -hmm. which is a uh, benzodiazepine. Mm -hmm. That's very common, right? Mm -hmm. You you have people that take that and, and they know this is the dosage and it ends up that it has a, a lethal dose of fentanyl, right? And you may have someone that's mm -hmm. opioid naive, meaning they've never taken opioids and it's going to push them over really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I think with that as context, I want to kind of go through each of the harm reduction strategies and kind of discuss pros and cons and, and where, you know, I, I will say the the one that I think always needs to be looked at is what are the results on the ground, right? And I love that both you guys are very outcome-driven, right? Mm -hmm. That these are experimental in some sense, right? We don't have any 10-year studies that show, you know, potentially, you know, deleterious side effects or positives that we didn't see. Um, and I think that that's something that needs to be understood is that this is emerging, Right. But if we don't innovate, we're going to keep getting the same results we've gotten. And I think anyone that is honest with themselves looking back over the last 20 years, they would say the, the strategies we've employed have not been effective. Um, and so with that, can, I'd like to start with Narcan and just an understanding of, of what exactly it does, who gets it, where do you get it? Actually, now it's available at drugstores. Um, and so... What opioids do when you overdose, it depresses your heart and your respiratory system so you can stop breathing. And uh, Narcan binds to the opiate receptors and prevents the uptake of the opioids. So it, it again, it prevents you from overdosing. Um, the challenge is it, it's good for about 30 to 90 minutes, and if you still have opiates in your system, then you can still overdose w without getting an additional dose. So it's really important people not see this as a magic fix, like, oh, if I overdose, I'll just take Narcan and everything's all better. No, you really need to go to the emergency department at that point and, and be medically supervised and to make sure you don't later on after that wears off uh, have um, end up having your breathing and your heart stop. So it, you know, it's not magic. I, and, and I think, you know, maybe that might be some of the perceptions like, oh, it just keeps people alive so they can. No, it, it's serious when it has to be administered and that the seriousness needs to be recognized. But it does keep that person alive to get to the emergency department so they can be treated. And hopefully the outcome of that could be that they choose to get into a recovery program. Absolutely. And I, I want to get a couple things for our listeners, right? It is available. Is it free at drugstores? I don't believe it's free, no, but, but um, 
you know, also first responders carry it. So law enforcement, uh, paramedics, you know, have, fire department all have access to it. Um, Alluvian, Cascade County has it. Um, I know that there are other there are certain pharmacies that include it when the person picks up their opiates. So, for example, mm-hmm. they um, they include it with their prescriptions. So it's just something that the pharmacy gives out. Mm-hmm. And you also have nonprofits that are willing to uh, mail it to you if you need it. Mm-hmm. It's really readily available. And just something that I, I want to include in that um, discussion is I read an article this past couple of days about the University of Montana is creating a vaccine for heroin and fentanyl. And it's to prevent cool. overdose. And I don't know if it's the same thing as Narcan, but it's something that um, our university systems here in Great Falls, or here in Montana, is trying to combat the overdose mm-hmm. epidemic that is happening here in our community. So that's something mm-hmm. to be commended. And I know it is free at the City County Health Department, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone can go get Narcan. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, especially if you're a family member, you know, or working with people who may be at risk, right? There is absolutely no reason to not go have this uh, on hand, right? Uh, it's something that truly can save a life, right? And, it, and it, I'm not saying it's a, a silver bullet, right? It is just the beginning. But to your point, if if you don't have it on hand, uh, you know, it, it does. People's breathing shuts down. They stop getting oxygen to their brain. And, and you know, you're, you don't have a lot of time, right? So it's not like calling 911 is going to be your solution in these situations. You really need to have that on hand to be administered immediately because mm-hmm. seconds matter mm-hmm. in these in these instances. So I want to really, uh, Narcan has been pushed by the state of Montana. It's already saved a lot of lives. You can talk to our first responders here in Great Falls, whether they be, you know, EMTs, police department, right? It is being utilized mm-hmm. and it is saving lives. With that one, I, I know there's been some pushback, right? Well, you're here, people say, well, you know, you, you just give them the Narcan and, and you're essentially encouraging them to keep using i've we've talked about this offline Mm -hmm. i think that's a hard argument to sustain where it's basically that if you have people making bad choices that we wouldn't come up with interventions that can prevent them from facing the full effect of their choices the the analogy that i use it would be like saying we're not going to have you know uh heart defibrillators in buildings because most of the people that have heart attacks, you know, didn't take care of their body and that's why they have heart disease. So why are we going to, you know, subsidize their bad choices? It's a very hard argument when you really kind of look at it across the scope of of interventions that we feel are humane as a society, right? We're not a a kind of, hey, uh, those that make bad choices, we're going to just write them off, right? Also, um, it's not just for the people who are knowingly and willingly willingly using these drugs. It's for people who may accidentally stumble and ingest or be exposed to those types of drugs through um, their through another person's fault or their their um, other happenstance. Um, for example, you had a two year old that was at daycare, and mm-hmm. the person um, the person's husband actually had drugs, and the baby became exposed to those drugs, which led to her um, overdosing. 
But you have situations like that, and those happen, you know, quite often. And that was to a child who couldn't, you know, make those decisions to be exposed or not to be exposed. So you have drugs that are not only saving people who are in active addiction, but you have drug these drugs that are saving lives for people who have no control over their exposure to those drugs. Absolutely. The drug endangered children Mm -hmm. is something that uh, I I know our community has Mm -hmm. trainings, has been going out talking to Mm -hmm. people in hotels, in in, uh, convenience stores, right, that may kind of be someone that can recognize uh, children that are endangered by drugs. Mm -hmm. But that's a very uh, important point, right, that Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. about our community safety and especially, you know, our children. Um, And so I want to now move on to what I think is really the biggest one as someone that's kind of in this field, so to speak, uh, of substance abuse is medication-assisted treatment. And and it's the one that it, it has a variety of, of types. But, you know, again, I think we've been trying to give a, a working definition. What is a medication-assisted treatment? What does that mean? So medication-assisted treatment is um, a program that offers the client medication that will help them with their cravings as well as as well as our withdrawals. And it also has um, a portion of it that blocks opiates, that blocks the effects of opiates so the user can't get high off of opiates. Um, And it essentially provides them a um, foundation for them to go out and seek mental health counseling because that's the second portion of the medication-assisted treatment programs. I mean, you get the medication, but a big part of it is seeking out mental health resources so that way you're able to work on yourself as a person and really heal from your trauma, um, develop coping skills, and without the fear of being triggered into relapse. Because as we know, relapse is very um, prevalent, unfortunately. But personally, I've always felt really comfortable in the MAP program, especially when I was um, seeking out different forms of counseling because I wasn't 100% sure if they were always going to work. And, you know, there's that level of frustration of like, well, after this, I should be great. But then it never came. And, and it can make you feel, you know, really bad. It can make you feel um, like you're not doing anything correctly. But the reality is that you're going to have ups and downs in recovery. Um, and I think that programs like MAT are there to help be a tool. They're there to help um, you to assist in becoming and remaining sober. And so I think that, one, I think it's really important to get into some of the details of it, right? You will have clinicians, right, that would tell you that the treatment for opioid use disorder is MAT, period, full stop. That may well be, you know, something that's going to work for people. I think the public needs to understand if that's what we're saying is that if you have an opioid use disorder, we're going to put you on a medication that in many cases includes an opioid, mm-hmm. and that's going to be it, versus an approach that has it integrated with, with mental health, mm-hmm. behavioral health issues. Because I think something that the, the listeners should be aware of is some kind of the, the payment system for this, right? If, if you look at substance use disorder treatment, 75% of that funding is coming from a state source, right? So Medicaid, Medicare, other programs those are the two main ones people think about and the the going rate for your suboxone and I'll, we'll get into what suboxone is mm-hmm. in a minute but is about three thousand dollars a year 
And so you do have, and we see this throughout our, our medical system. And I'm not saying we need to debate U.S. healthcare system here. It is fee for service, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have a provider that wants to make money, right? You've got a person that can be on this in theory indefinitely, right? 20, 30, 40 years, they would say on uh, medication-assisted treatment, and they're billing them out at $3,000 a year. You can see how there can be some incentives to make money at the kind of cost of giving the ideal therapeutic mm-hmm. treatment. And I and I think that that's worthy of note. And, and Elfie, I want to kind of pivot to you here and and say do do you envision you know when you talk to clinicians is there are there efforts being made to kind of make sure that we're not kind of incentivizing the the providers that care the least because they almost have a competitive advantage right because they offer nothing in wraparound services and they're just doing that mat and making that money 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 Mm -hmm. and and so you don't want to see those be the dominant providers No, you want people, you know, I, I mean, I think that's one of the things Ashley has really um, stressed that is so important. This is a piece of the treatment process, not the whole treatment. And and if, you know, it, it kind of, I guess one analogy I can come up with is, that I see more um, is people who are depressed and are given antidepressants but are not encouraged through counseling to maybe make some other changes in their lives, you know, and so they continue to engage in behaviors that sustain that depression. And, you know, medication is not a magic cure. It may take the edge off. It may help them function. But if you don't address what's underneath that, that's as good as it's going to get. And I would mm-hmm. suspect that that's true with Matt, too. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing, you know, I just want to say, not everybody who's depressed needs antidepressants. And I can tell you, so one of my jobs in my career has been I worked for a health insurance company as a case manager. So we, when clinicians would call for additional sessions, therapy sessions, uh, we would need them to justify why more sessions are needed. And one of the things we were very much encouraged to do from our our bosses was to push antidepressants and ask them, why is this person not on an antidepressant? Yeah. And, you know, because from the health insurance company standpoint, that is cheaper than keeping somebody in therapy for two, three, four years. Because the reality is when somebody has high levels of trauma, and often that's what's underlying depression, or whether it's poor coping skills or, you know, people pleasing and that loss of self, that doesn't magically get fixed with 10 sessions. And, you know, as a clinician myself, that was one of my frustrations is like, you don't fix trauma that's happened over 5, 10, 15, 20 years in, in 10 sessions. It just doesn't work. You know, that it's long-term treatment, and that takes more than, hey, let's just prescribe medication. And I suspect that's some of the dynamic that goes on with Matt, too. So, again, you need to look at the individual and what do they need and what's going to be in their best interests. But that's not to say that um, there isn't organizations or institutions out there that don't um, do what you're referencing. Um, for example, when I very first started Matt, I'd have to uh, travel over to Seattle to go get my prescription for three months. Um, and that was because we didn't have any services like Matt here in Great Falls. Um, thankfully, though, we did get those services. But that my first organization that I went to here in Great Falls, I felt like that. I felt like it was very much um, 
come in 15 minutes and you're out, you know, like in and out, in and out. There was no support in them referring me to any mental health counseling. I had to seek those resources on my own. There was no accountability to ensure that I was in fact continuing mental health counseling. And so to me, when I actually started looking into what Matt's intentions are, there is a huge focus on the the resources aspect of making sure that you are um, seeking out mental health counseling and not just the actual medication. And I think that when you have these institutions or these organizations that just focus on getting money and that are very income driven, you you play a part in perpetuating negative stereotypes, mm-hmm. especially here in small communities. Um, so when people started hearing about uh, these clinics that were meant and intended to help people, they started associating with, oh, it's just... Um, addicts getting their fix. It's just, you know, we're just giving them drugs so they can go and continue to use drugs. And the reality is, no, that's not the intention. So it definitely um, tends to make people be very negative towards these approaches because of previous information, misinformation that has been um, either told to them by individuals or people who um, tend to create falsehoods into these not being the best things for our community. Um, I think that this argument can be said for a lot of things like, you know, diabetes medications, cancer medications, you know, it's, it's all um, very income driven, unfortunately, in our healthcare system. But that doesn't mean that there isn't success within those um, approaches. I think that's the key point is that, you know, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And we shouldn't not invest mm-hmm. in medication-assisted treatment because there's, you know, actors that are just going to try to, you know, mm-hmm. offer as much of it as possible. I think what what it does behoove us to do is to work with the state, right? When it is mm-hmm. one of those powerful things, when they're seventy-five percent of the funding, yeah. right, is that they have the levers of power to say, well, we're seeing that that's not effective. And so I, I think that that point is very well taken. You know, I've heard ones, and, and I don't have the answer to this, but it should be noted, right, that there's some places, right, that it, you could come in and have a UA that's positive for meth, benzos, alcohol, pot, and they'll keep giving you Suboxone. I don't know whether that's right or wrong. I can just say that that's something that needs to be thought about, right? Mm-hmm. There needs to be a conversation, not just like, I don't care whatever's going on in your life. All I do is give you Suboxone, and that treats your opioid disorder. I mean, I've heard people that they they try to kind of separate opioid disorders from other substance abuse and mm-hmm. you've got your opioid disorder under control, but now we're working on your meth alcohol. To all my non-clinician knowledge, it's not how the brain works, right? That we, we have the amygdala, they all interact with it. So the idea that you're treating your, your you know, opioid addiction, but still using alcohol, meth, and these other drugs, and we're getting somewhere because they're they're different. To me, see, the, the saying those are not connected is, seems bizarre. They are connected. I think that uh, when people when people think about curing or fixing addiction, they want something that's really fast and instant mm-hmm. because we are in a culture that is very based on instant gratification. However, addiction is a lifelong disease. It's something that is requires a lot of hard work and a lot of persistence and 
for people who don't struggle with addiction themselves, they may not understand the nuances surrounding that. So just because you, you know, quote unquote, fix your opioid addiction doesn't mean that you can just, you know, island it off into your brain and be like, okay, well, we're going to go fix on you know, alcohol and meth, it's all substances. And those, all of those substances impact your brain, mm-hmm. impact the way you um, feel and what your motivations are. And so for the MAT program specifically, MAT is intended to stabilize you at this point in time. It's not meant to cure you. It doesn't offer you, you know, a quick fix you know, solution to your addiction, it is meant to stabilize you so you don't have withdrawal and so you don't experience cravings because those are most of, often the instant triggers that go in, you know, motivate a person to seek out their drugs of choice. Um, when you're, you're dealing with recovery strategies, it's really a complex issue because there is no black or white. It's shades of gray and each person is individualized in their addiction as well as their recovery so what we're doing now with these um, with these strategies is trying to find the best solution that is going to have the greatest impact on people and research shows that this is one of those approaches with Matt with um, safe needle exchange programs because if we don't have those approaches then we don't have nothing because doing nothing means that people continue to die and I think we can't r- repeat that enough is that it, you're not saying, OK, we're going to offer harm reduction or we're going to live in this great world where drug addiction isn't an issue that right now we're treating it, you know, quote unquote, treating it uh, at the ER, at in prison, <laughs> right, uh, through through ways that are manifestly not helping the problem and are extraordinarily expensive like the the one that i do try to always get across so i'm a big believer in peer support right which can be combined with medication assisted treatment of course right and really any other therapy is that they're they're very cost effective and and that they prevent utilization of acute resources that are simply over time not an effective way to treat a chronic disease. The the analogy I always give is, you know, if you look at where the big dollars go in, in addiction treatment, right? It's medical detox, it's emergency rooms, it's, you know, inpatient treatment, right? I'm not saying all those things aren't vital. What I'm saying is that if you spend all the money there and neglect the, the medication-assisted treatment, the peer support, the outpatient treatment, mm-hmm. you're really shooting yourself in the foot because mm-hmm. you just have people cycle back through and they just come back into the ER, back into jail. They don't get the resources they need and they come back and they come back and you're never going to get anywhere with that, right? Mm-hmm. And the it would be as if with diabetes, the government gave no money for insulin, right? And then when you came in, because your diabetes inevitably went out of control, they paid to have your leg amputated, right? Put you in post-acute care for 60 days, sent you back out with no insulin. And and it, it, it is, and you laugh because it's, it, it's humorous of how insane it is, but this is something that's going on across of our country, costing billions of dollars, countless lives, and we keep doing it because the system doesn't incentivize outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. It incentivizes offering services and if you have someone at the er you can bill out a lot of money 
inpatient treatment, it's a lot of money. And I think this is where we get back to the, the, the real allies in this, right? are the state it's the payors it's the insurance companies that should say this is madness Mm -hmm. how can we work with you know the ashley's the elfies of the world to make changes in the way that we incentivize care right the way we reimburse for care that are gonna you know lead to better outcomes and and more individualized treatment i think um one approaches would be uh humanizing the issue Mm -hmm. outside of a person who is in active addiction because when we think of an addict we have this um, person in our you know in our mind of what they um, they look like in the qualities that they possess but when you see a recovered person you may not think you may not see me you may not see you know other people who are in recovery who have used these approaches and have been successful at it and are mm-hmm. still being successful at it I think that um when you really focus on the benefits of these programs and these strategies, you're going to realize that these have human impact. Mm-hmm. There is human impact. And in that, there's community impact. So while we're busy paying, you know, 10x do- 10 times the amount of money towards one end, we could be spending 10 times amount towards the other end in prevention efforts. Mm-hmm. So I think in that cost analysis there's we need, really really need to focus our efforts on not criminalizing the addict because we are essentially leaving them to be a part of the system mm-hmm. and creating a maze of them to continue to be a part of that system mm-hmm. with no way out and i think that when we offer these types of of strategies we're giving them hopefully a a different route other than to continue to use, other than to continue to be triggered, other than to continue to, you know, have all of these negative um, associations with within themselves. I, you could not have stated that better. I, I do think criminalizing addiction, right? And, and it all sounded good at the outset, right? You think of Nixon, right, and the war on drugs, and we're going to protect our kids. And what it did is it led to a, a, a generation of folks, right, who are, at the end of the day, they have been traumatized and they are trying to cope unhealthily with drugs. And the way we've addressed that in large part is to lock them up, put them in prison, give them a felony that then is going to make it hard for them to make a living. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a- asking the questions, does that fulfill any of the roles that we always think of classically with why we, you know, what criminal justice is about, right? Mm-hmm. Or do these people, do they deserve punishment, right? I mean, these are these theories of of, of kind of why we do things in the criminal justice system that they don't align. And I really appreciate that you bring that out because I, I think our community in many times, right, to your point, they just see the blotter, right? They see what's on the police mm-hmm. report. They don't see the, the beautiful, positive things that are happening in these you know, MAP programs, in these recovery programs that are changing lives. And so they become... Okay, throw them in prison, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not working manifestly. Like, and I, and I, so I, I guess we're, without going too far down a rabbit hole, I know we're running out of time, but uh, I just want to uh, give our listeners this information. Again, I can't stress enough. Please, please, please come out. You have some of the best experts in the field here at this event. So come out and, and when are we doing it? And October 3rd. 
meet and greet, 5.30. Program starts from 6, runs till about 8 o'clock. Um, speakers and then panel discussion. And it's being held at Great Falls College, MSU, in Heritage Hall. And then I want to give you guys one last chance. Just if you have a uh, one thing you could change in the city of Great Falls, right? Right now, related to how we treat addiction, what would we do? I wish that we would stop looking at um, those in addiction as them. Mm -hmm. There is a line between uh, myself and them. Like, they are not me and I'm not them. But the reality is that there is community wellness within both of us. So when my neighbor isn't well, that means that I'm not well. Because what they do impacts me, whether it be directly or indirectly. And I really wish that we would stop isolating addiction and stigmatizing it and pretending like it impacts them when the reality is it impacts us too. Um, and I really wish that we would stop thinking of addicts as being these awful people who don't re deserve redemption because everyone does. I have nothing to add. I think <laughs> Ashley said that beautifully, and I totally, totally agree. That was so powerful. I mean, it <laughs> truly you. are. We are all in this together mm -hmm. in the most profound sense. And I want to thank you both for, for coming back on the show. So for our listeners, this is our re-record, and I want to thank you for your determination to get this done and just for everything you know that you guys do to support people in recovery from addiction. Thank you. We're happy Thank to be you. here. You've been listening to Voices and Views on Great Falls Public Radio, KGPR 89.9 FM. And that was Elfie Neighbor, psychology professor at Great Falls College, Montana State University, and Ashley Haley, a licensed addiction counselor student here at the college, as well as the Native American ambassador. listening. If you'd like more information about KGPR, please visit our website, kgpr.org, where you can find a link to donate, links to all of our other locally produced programming, and information about your local voice, KGPR Great Falls.